Love is a state of confusion in which the victim cannot distinguish between spiritual aspiration, carnal desire, and pride of ownership. The wise man satisfies the different thirsts at different fountains. And the wise woman? The wise woman patterns her life on the theory and practice of modern banking. She never gives her love, but only lends it on the best security and at the highest rate of interest. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are rounding out the 1952 awards with Moulin Rouge. And I said last week that at least this movie was going to be interesting, even if it was kind of terrible and campy. Turns out I was wrong. It wasn't interesting. No, so boring. Somehow Moulin Rouge is a boring biopic. And not a good one. This is one of those movies where I do not understand what the writers, producers, studio, anyone was thinking trying to make a movie about this period of time with these people in this place while the Hayes Code was still in effect. Because you just can't. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I mean, there is the perverse part of my brain that is like, You could, in fact, do an interesting movie about censorship that is heavily censored, but this ain't that movie. This is just a movie that has not thought at all about any of those issues, wrote a really, really boring story about Toulouse-Lautrec being too short to get laid, and then realized, oh, this is about, like, sex and drugs, and we can't mention any of those things. Oh, well, we'll just cut those out of the movie, and I'm sure it won't bother anything or make anything fuck up. Right, and what we'll do instead, since we can't make Toulouse-Lautrec this, like, pretty wild artist who spent a lot of time with sex workers as a patron, like, not just among them, (laughs) is... Essentially, we're going to try to make him into this Emile Zola-esque figure. (laughs) It it was very, very strange because it's constantly him having these like inspiring, rousing speeches against the people who tell him he can't do something. And I'm like, I don't think that was that guy at all. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It is at the same time such a weird movie and just so boring. Somehow. Yeah. And like, I'm so glad we can talk about who should have won at the end of this episode because like Zsa Zsa Gabor is in this movie. It's a major plot point that Toulouse-Lautrec is too inbred to be tall. Like he breaks <laughs> his legs and it's like, uh, your parents were just first cousins. Nothing to be done about it. You're just going to be four feet tall. Well, here's the wild thing. He was five feet tall. Yeah. The first time, I guess, that you see him stand up, which is at the end of 20 minutes of, again, somehow boring can-can. <laughs> It's very clear that the actor who was playing him, who is Jose Ferrer, Ferre, I'm not sure how you say that, is just on his knees and they've like put shoes in front of his knees. And he's like three feet tall, which... Yeah, it's terrible. Yes, he did break his legs when he was quite young and then his legs didn't heal correctly and they never grew while he did continue to grow from the waist up. So he was quite short, but he was five feet tall. He wasn't three feet tall. 
it isn't that I think none of this is interesting. It is that I think, how is none of this interesting? (laughs) It should be a really engaging story to watch this guy who is kind of forced by nature to be an outsider to this freewheeling period of culture. And it isn't. It just isn't. Like, he is just wandering around, mopey, he can't get laid, and can get laid just constantly. Like, every storyline is just... Well, uh, I mean, he's not getting laid. That's fair, because it's the Wink, wink. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And (laughs) as a result, everybody is coming in for that biopic thing of like, Hey, it's me, Ray Charles. You might have heard of me. Well, goodbye. (laughs) So nobody is doing any interesting character work. It's that terrible thing of movies set in foreign countries where everybody is speaking English, but speaking it like it's a second language to let you know that everyone here is French. Right, except for Toulouse-Lautrec, who is speaking very clean, almost accentless English. That's like, if you took transatlantic accent and turned it from 10 to 5... Yeah. And like Shasha Gabor has her regular accent, so fine. Like, I'm not expecting great character work from Shasha Gabor. That's never what she's here for. And that's delightful and fine. The few moments that she gets to shine and be Shasha Gabor are few and far between. Even the few moments she gets within her very limited screen time, <laughs> to be clear. And then Catherine Kath, who was actually French does not speak English very well. And it's almost like what they're trying to say is that if you have a French accent in this movie that is set in Paris, you're maybe uneducated, whereas the rest of the people are not. It's super fucking confusing as to why they did this the way they did it. The whole thing is just a mess. And it is not a mess in a way that it's an engagingly strange object. It's just a mess where your brain is like, I don't know, I'll just read the summary. Like, I don't care anymore. Like, you just stop caring about any of the characters almost immediately. Because the movie never signifies which characters you need to care about. Never signifies, like, what about a scene is important or unimportant. None of the shit in that scene for the first 20 minutes matters, except for a guy going, hey, do you want to do a poster for us? Everything else is just this weird incidental character work. So I feel like this is a necessity because I found myself doing this while watching the movie. I absolutely understand where the newer Moulin Rouge came from (laughs) after seeing this movie. Because I would have watched this and gone, holy fuck, how did they make this boring? It would be so easy to make this not boring (laughs) and then have made Moulin Rouge, to be clear, from 2001. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Moulin Rouge that is just like, we're at the club, they're doing their performance, and it's engaging. And what's frustrating is that that's not something that is new for Hollywood, right? Doing an engaging both visually and musically and with good dance musical number is a thing Hollywood has known how to do 
for longer than it's known how to make a good movie. <laughs> yeah, and I actually don't think any of that stuff is particularly good in this movie. It's terrible. That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, yeah. They threw it all out, and I'm not really sure what for. Like, the thing that I really noticed in the first 20 minute scene, which is mostly just people doing can can, is this really was like a dance that was just people showing their underwear a whole lot. And then I thought about it a little bit longer. And it wasn't like, yes, that was part of it. But most of the quote unquote performance is just like two girls trying to outdo one another by holding their skirt up and then raising it up higher. (laughs) Yeah, it sucks because the movie makes no attempt to show you why people in this world were so engaged by this thing, which I think is a combination of the Hayes Code, which is like, well, it can't be that they were all perverts, my God. And that the movie just sucks. That the movie makes no attempt to go like, this was the place to be for X whatsoever. Right. They keep doing establishing shots of people drinking, I guess, I'm sort of trying to think of a movie that is sort of about a place the way that this is about a place that immediately gets you on board for, like, this place rules. Like, everyone would want to be here. Of course they would. 2001's Moulin Rouge, a movie I don't like very much, actually, does that correct. Like, that is the thing that movie gets immediately right. Oh, yeah. Uh, This movie is just so boring. I honestly had to this morning, we delayed recording because I had just this terrible headache yesterday and genuinely forgot I stopped watching this movie yesterday and needed to finish watching it this morning because I was just like, yeah, and then the other girl likes him and then he can't believe it and then he dies. Like, I must have watched it because the experience of reading the Wikipedia page and the experience of watching this movie are near identical <laughs> like there there just is nothing to draw you toward the screen and it sucks i think one of the most frustrating things about this movie to me is that even the parts of toulouse lautrec's biography that are not anathema to the hayes code which is not a lot of it let's be real but there are parts of it are left out of this for completely nonsensical reasons. Like, he doesn't go to a sanatorium, which is something that did happen in his actual life. He was a great cook, which is another thing that they don't really talk about. They could have done more about the painting and him selling his paintings, and instead they do this incredibly neutered version of him having a lot of sexual relationships with women who were prostitutes. And, like, his parents disapprove of him clearly at the level of what he did in real life. But again, because of the Hayes Code, that mostly just means that his parents just look really sad and disappointed all the time. Yeah. Like, mostly his mom. I totally get what you're saying. There is a version of this movie that is not the 2001 high melodrama bizarre passion play shit that movie becomes but this is like a stanley tucci vehicle oh my god i would absolutely watch the stanley tucci biopic of toulouse Lautrec. someone please make that immediately (laughs) yeah it's just this guy that is 
clearly bitter about his lot in life, but has found happiness and has found ways to kind of move through the world is just like such a Stanley Tucci part and so much better than this version of Toulouse-Lautrec who just yells whenever anyone mentions his height. Yeah. It's so boring and stupid. God. I don't know if you know who Elsa Schiaparelli is. Let's say, yeah, I totally do, but our audience needs to be informed. (laughs) All right. Elsa Schiaparelli was a fashion designer. She started working around the 30s, maybe like the mid-20s, who was friends with a lot of the surrealists. She made a lot of very surrealist work. Like she made a hat that looked like a high-heeled shoe and stuff like that. She designed stuff for Mae West. She also was possibly a spy during World War II, but that's not really important to this. Anyway, the point is, I've never seen anything Skyparelli has ever made that I felt was at least not interesting. You know, she did also make stuff that was just incredibly well-tailored, beautiful suits for women. And then she also made stuff like lobster dresses. (laughs) And she did the costumes for this, and somehow... Even the costumes are boring in this movie. (laughs) That is wild because I kind of get what should be happening here. Like what you were saying about what was anyone thinking to me is like, I guess the idea is that, well, the Moulin Rouge is going to be just such an interesting location that it can kind of be our central character And it doesn't really matter that we can't really get into Toulouse-Lautrec's life. But then the Moulin Rouge is just boring. Yeah. Yeah. All of the outfits, it's not just that those outfits are boring, which makes that story shocking to me. It is all of the outfits just feel like you could have grabbed it from just the fucking costume closet. Yes, exactly. I mean, they look accurate. They're period appropriate. They're right for the can-can or whatever. But why the fuck do you hire Elsa Schiaparelli to do the costumes and not let her go absolutely wild? There is one dress in this that is on... So it should be on Jane Avril, who is Zsa Zsa Gabor's character. But it is on a woman who is standing behind her that is based on a poster that Toulouse-Lautrec did, which is it's a long ankle-length evening gown that has like a print or embroidery who knows because it's a Toulouse track poster but of a snake that wraps around from its head right over the chest and then spirals around the body to the tail being at the very bottom of the dress and Skyparelli did make the dress and then they put it in the back of the frame where you can't see most of it with Zsa Zsa Gabor in like a totally forgettable because I literally can't remember what she was wearing outfit standing in front of this woman. <laughs> I mean, she's always wearing like these weird little Bo Peep dresses. Yes. Zsa Zsa Gabor is that it are weirdly like, I guess that's technically what? Okay, whatever. But it feels like Zsa Zsa Gabor was like, I have to be the classy one at the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Yes. It's boring. Like everything else in this movie that I did not enjoy and that I do not think is going to qualify as a movie at the end of the episode. Yeah. You know what's wild? This movie is 119 minutes long and it felt like three hours. Yeah. I could not sit through it in one sitting. The other thing that's just bizarre about it 
is how weirdly paced it is. Like, the flashback to him breaking his legs is so long. Also, the funniest thing in the movie is how bad child actor him falls down the stairs. (laughs) It is just... just, I feel bad laughing at that, but my God, it's so true. His whole first relationship with a prostitute who isn't a prostitute because she has a boyfriend. Well, and also... She sleeps on the chaise long that is in his apartment and they never have sex and he just paints her and then gives her money. All of that to like him becoming so distraught about it and almost killing himself is like the first hour 15 and then his success, this complete other relationship, the back and forth of this complete other relationship, her confessing her love, but then not giving him enough time to respond before she goes off to get married. And then him just falling over dead from the tragedy of it all before somebody's like, don't worry, everyone thinks you're the greatest artist who ever lived. And he goes, okay. is <laughs> like 35 minutes. It is bizarre that everything that you would think of as the story of this, like everything that would get through the haze code is like i don't know let's just put all that shit at the end yeah it's it's a mess it's a mess it's a mess it's not even an interesting mess i mean this is the cardinal sin to me right like if you are going to be a mess at least be interesting yeah even if i fucking hate it stuff like one hour with you i absolutely fucking hate hated that movie and it was a mess and everyone in it was absolutely just loathable but it was interesting (laughs) there are two types of mess right there's the interesting type of mess is the like nobody was at the wheel mess where nobody knows what anybody else is doing and usually in that kind of a mess you get uh i forget what it what dumb oh divergent is the from the year I just was constantly going to see bad movies. And so I was like seeing the third or second or third movie in a YA trilogy that didn't take off. Was this inspired by the worst idea of all time where you were like, what if I just watch the sequels to movies I haven't seen that I know are going to be bad? Uh, it was that I was going to the movie theater at the Grove. I was walking over to kind of the closest movie theater to our home to get out of the house at least once a week and sort of right out of the house. And I would go and see just whatever movie was catching my fancy at that theater. And usually there was only one movie I actually wanted to go see there a month. And so for the other three weeks, it was just like, I guess I'll go see you know maze runner the scorch trials which you've weirdly talked about a lot it really left an impression on you it did little finger saying you you'll you'll never last a day out in the scorch i'm still upset that we don't just all talk about that as a culture 24 7 like why is that not a meme you know yeah but this divergent movie had like these dumb ar controlled drones that were how the bad guy utopia showed it was bad guys But the person who did the interface design for the AR interface in the universe for the drones spent nights and weekends on it, like really cared about it in a way none of the actors or the director or the costume designer of this movie cared. (laughs) And like, it was fascinating to watch this one part of the movie just be head and shoulders above every other part of the movie. 
And this movie doesn't even give you that because it's a design by committee mess. Mm, yeah. Every decision has been second guessed and third guessed and fourth guessed. Every decision is the cool snake dresses in the background of the shot while Zsa Zsa Gabor is wearing the most boring dress imaginable. Like that is the entire film is somebody going, oh, that's too big of a swing. Pull back. And it is a mess as a result because it means nobody ever takes a swing. But it is also just so fucking boring. So don't watch this movie, obviously. And I don't know, like, one. <laughs> I feel we gave a one last week, but, you know, sometimes a thing. Yeah. Sometimes two things deserve a one. Yeah. There's just nothing to recommend this movie. It doesn't do anything horribly offensive. Well, I don't know. I feel like its handling of disability is really fucked up. Well, yeah, that's totally fair. I was thinking of, like, how it doesn't really manage to say anything too horrible about sex workers by not saying anything about them. But yeah, you're right. It does really bad work around disability and doesn't do good work around anything else. So one. Yeah. This is our last movie of 1952. So we should talk about how High Noon should have won. <laughs> oh, man. You, you, um, <laughs> you, you, you did not keep the cat in the bag. Yeah. So High Noon absolutely should have won, and it's not even close. So this is maybe a good spot to mention that apparently The Quiet Man was my grandmother and grandfather, Gia and Daddy Tom's favorite movie. Listen, Mrs. Miniver was my mother's mother's favorite movie. That was my granny's favorite movie, so it's okay. We talked a lot in the Quiet Man episode about how there's all of this talk whenever there is, turns out to be another shitty sex creep man who is rich and famous of like, well, how do you separate the art from the artist? And it's like, well, usually you don't have to because Woody Allen usually just makes films about how you should be able to touch little girls. Yes. And so like it isn't actually very difficult to separate a movie with terrible politics from a bad movie because most movies with terrible politics are made by shitty people badly. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> the, the Quiet Man is a weird movie. Like, this is such a charming movie made by clearly talented people that you just can't square the circle. But I do think it's our second best movie of the year. Because it's the only other really well-made movie of the year. Yeah, I agree. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> All of it is well-made, which is frustrating because, like we said in the episode for that movie, when you have something that is well-crafted in the service of something shitty, it's somehow worse than it just being shitty. But the parts of it that are not shitty, the charming small Irish town parts, are really great. <laughs> yeah. They very specifically, I think Gia and Daddy Tom liked that movie because Daddy Tom very strongly believed that Gia looked a lot like Maureen O'Hara in that movie, which is not completely untrue, but is also like, you always think the person you married looks a little bit more like a movie star than maybe they do. <laughs> Right, yeah. Like, oh, yes, my wife looks like Elizabeth Taylor. And you're like, yeah, in a way, if I had to pick someone. Yeah, but also that Maureen O'Hara in that movie of being, like, very much a spitfire that is actually given some room to be, like, an interesting, difficult person with a point of view, I think is one of the things that really attracted them to it. And also in their defense, they both hated John Wayne 
it's their favorite John Wayne movie, but they still made fun of how John Wayne's ultimate acting move is throwing away a cigarette, that he expresses all emotions, the entire gamut of emotions by just throwing a cigarette down on the ground. And it's like, well, he liked that. He hated that. Now he's very sad. You can tell because in each of those three scenarios, he threw a cigarette on the ground and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) They're not wrong. These are quiet man fun facts so that we don't have to talk about Moulin Rouge. And because it seems like the place to put it in to go like, listen, High Noon is clearly a better movie, deals with weirdly a lot of the same ideas (laughs) as Quiet Man and does it, I think, a little bit better and does it without the terrifying political turn in the third act that I just can't deal with. But it is charming when it's charming. People are giving good performances in that movie. It is art directed well. I enjoyed looking at that movie in a way that the much bigger, flashier, more expensive movies of this year, like Greatest Show on Earth, just did not grip me and did not feel as well made. And that's why it gets second place behind High Noon, which is just the easy winner for this year. And is excellent, and is literally the only film that I would recommend from this year that anyone watch. Yeah, I think Quiet Man is interesting from a film historical context, but it is tough to watch him basically break his wife's arm and for her to be horny for it. And for that to not be an interesting psychosexual thing to be explored, but to be the movie going like, we all know this is okay and everyone should like it, right? Uh, yeah. But let's talk about 1953, a year with three full films I'm excited to watch, arguably four with From Here to Eternity. (laughs) Everything but the robe in this year, I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll watch that. Yeah, I don't know about Julius Caesar either, but I'm curious... It's either going to be an absolute fucking disaster or really good. I mean, here's what I think. I think it's going to be an absolute fucking disaster, except for Brando as Mark Antony. Oh, see, I feel like the rest of the cast being John Gielgud and Deborah Kerr and Greer Garson and like a bunch of people who are solid British theater actors... Yeah. Against Brando is going to be, he is performing in an entirely different movie than everyone else, which isn't wrong yeah. for Mark Antony. <laughs> yeah, I think that could actually, I don't know. It's clearly going to be another one of our us talking about Shakespeare bullshit for an hour and a half episodes. Because, yeah, I think there's something really interesting to casting Mark Antony as being effectively in an entirely different play than everybody else. But yeah, that is not what we are starting with. What we are starting with is Shane, which is a very well-regarded Western that I have never seen. I have never seen it either. I forget what movie it is where they reference the end of Shane like 50 times. But my main knowledge of Shane may come from... The Negotiator? Yeah, I think that's the... I think that's the movie. Is like Samuel L. Jackson and fucking Voldemort (laughs) in a just sort of standard issue 90s cop thriller, except Samuel L. Jackson's very good in it. The plot is very standard issue. It's weird that Samuel L. Jackson has been in like 80,000 movies and I can only think of like six where I've been like, they gave Samuel L. Jackson enough to do. They used Samuel L. Jackson well. Hmm. Yeah, I 
like Pulp Fiction is the only one that is coming to mind for me. Well, and like snakes on a plane, but <laughs> that's on purpose. Yeah, and like Marvel, get at me if you want to let me cast a younger him and do a secret invasion full on Nick Fury movie that does like Starenko esque visual effects using After Effects because you should just let him monologue as Nick Fury for an hour and a half while backgrounds look fucking wild. <laughs> but they don't do it. They clearly cast him as that and then decided they want to do other stuff because action figures. Yeah. Welcome once again to Marvel Corner here at <laughs> Screen Test of Time. Damn it. Yeah, but tune in next week to find out if Kevin Spacey and Samuel L. Jackson arguing over this movie and the ending was worth arguing over. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what we're... I feel like maybe that won't come up. I feel like if that comes up next week, that's a really bad sign for whether or not we enjoyed Shane. <laughs> so let's hope you don't hear about that next week and we just like Shane and talk about that movie. And how it's great. I hope so. Yeah, until then, get Stanley Tucci to remake this movie. Because it isn't currently a movie, it's just a bunch of bullshit. But Stanley Tucci could really do something with it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think he really could. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Hi,